This is Sound and Vision, a podcast from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. On today's show, we'll hear how international artists are having a harder time touring across borders because of extreme vetting. It's really sad because those artists are playing different parts of the world. We're missing out. We'll hear from Washington State's Poet Laureate about how her experience as an immigrant and fleeing El Salvador's civil war influences her writing. We lived in a reign of terror, and it was impossible to have an everyday existence in El Salvador. As Seattle continues to grow and become more and more expensive, we'll hear from musicians who have lived around larger cities to find out if Seattle's problems are really as bad as we think they are. I really don't think they are. And I remember complaining about that at the time when I was there, but I definitely pay way more in rent now than I did when I lived in Seattle. But first, I have a review of the latest album from Of Monsters and Men. Nine years ago, KEXP went to the Iceland Airwaves Music Festival and shot a video of the band before they released their very first album. And this is the song, Little Talks. That video now has more than 8 million views on YouTube, and that single ended up on the band's debut album that was released a year later. The album hit number 6 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart, and Little Talks hit number 1 for U.S. alternative songs. Of Monsters and Men released their third full-length studio album Friday. It's called Fever Dream. What is the definition of a fever dream? <laughs> I would say it's like a half wake, half asleep, half, you know, hallucinating. Yeah. It just felt like something that fit the album well. And yeah. you kind of felt like when we were trying to figure out what the name of the album would be and to sum up all the songs, it felt like it represented it, it pretty well. I am Ragnar Thorosson. And I am Nanna Brindis Hilmarsdottir. They are both the lead singers and guitarists in Of Monsters and Men. The sound of this album is a departure from the band's first album that had a folk rock vibe, similar to Mumford and & Sons. And I will wait, I will wait for you. Or Early Head in the Heart. Lost, I get lost, I get This latest album has more of a poppier vibe. Many of the songs are strong, energetic ballads like Vulture, Vulture. Row, Row, Row. And the album's single, Alligator. change in sound was intentional, partly because the band took a different approach in their songwriting process in this album. 
Instead of the band gathering together and playing ideas out on their instruments, Nana says band members took time to write songs individually at first by putting their ideas into a computer program. That gave it more of that produced electronic sound. I felt it was very playful to do it that way. You know, because you're kind of like, you know, when you yeah. pick up a guitar, an acoustic guitar, I, I feel like I know what I'm going to come up with. And when I had a laptop in front of me, you know, it just feels like, you know, there's so many options. The lyrical content of this album focuses a lot on longing for someone or something. But with a new approach in the songwriting process, Nana was able to play a bigger part in writing lyrics to some of the songs. With that, Nana says she's been able to explore her femininity a little more on this album. She says you can hear it in the song Soothsayer. That to me is a very feminine song because it's like, it feels kind of sensual in a way. You know, in the chorus, there's like kind of this army of women that are just like crying out, like, stay here, stay here. And that to me feels, and that's the, the, the longing that I was talking about. There's like this kind of um, deep, it's, it's hurt. Meanwhile, Ragnar wrote the song Stuck in Gravity. He intended for Nana to sing it because the song didn't seem masculine enough. I'm stuck in gravity I'm far from where I want to be I'm like a raindrop in the ocean I get lost in my delusion of reality Well, she had made me kind of face that and just, you know, re- represent it, that I would represent it. And it felt right in the end. This song for you, I think, was like you had to step out of your comfort yeah. zone. And like, I just thought it added like such a deep layer to the song if you are singing it. And it's your song and it's like your story, you know. Yeah. So it feels right to do it that way. Of Monsters and Men's Home of Iceland has had an influence on the band's music. It's a country with extreme weather and beauty. Parts of it looks like Mars, and other parts are filled with green hills and rushing waterfalls. You can hear some of Iceland's landscapes sneak into the lyrics. You hear it in the song Under a Dome, with lyrics about watching tidal waves, and in the line, Why should I cry over northern lights? Ragnar says that song was inspired from a trip they took to a part of the country called West Fjords. Yeah, but, but that's like, you know ridiculous landscapes and kind of like those landscapes that make you afraid yes and it's just the mountains just kind of like you know they they just like surround you Mm -hmm. so it's it's a very overwhelming feeling to be there and at the same time it's just very quiet yeah and so too quiet too quiet a bit (laughs) suspicious (laughs) (laughs) and um, so yeah I mean that song we worked on it a lot in that place and that song doesn't really have like a big structure it's very like floaty and it just like it doesn't have you know feel like it could go on forever really yeah and that's kind of what it feels like when you're there Ragnar and Nana say they don't usually travel to write most of their songs are written at home when they're alone I know that, like, Raki, you wrote a lot in, like, yeah, the it's night. Like, it's like when, the, when you know just, like, the, that everyone has gone to sleep. 
and you know you're alone, your phone won't ring, nothing will happen, and there's a motorcycle outside. <laughs> <laughs> and the motorcycle is gone. <laughs> um, yeah, those moments when you, f- you know you won't be interrupted and you just it's pitch black mm-hmm. and you're just there. Uh, I wrote most of the songs in that state. Yeah. What do the Icelandic winters do for you? I mean, to be to be in in darkness for so long is that inspiring mm. musically, or is that is that hard on the spirit? I think it's very inspiring. You know, the Icelandic winters. I love them. I mean, we have we have a song on the album called "Waiting for the Snow," which is like kind of this. You know, it's that sentence is very much like being in Iceland, and you are just waiting for that moment of like you know, everything to kind of clear up. I'm waiting for the snow I'm waiting for this shit. You know, I, I love that feeling when it snows and, you know, it's like very cold and you just don't want to leave the house so you wear the same clothes for four days. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you start to smell a bit and yeah. you like the smell. <laughs> and yeah, you just become like a weird person. You don't talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's when the best songs come yeah. because that's when time just, you know, stands still and no one bothers to call you even because everyone is so depressed about the weather. It's good. <laughs> I've been speaking with Nana and Ragnar from Of Monsters and Men. Their latest album, Fever Dreams, was released Friday. This is Sound and Vision, a new podcast from KEXP. Well, Seattle has changed a lot in 10 years. The cost of buying a house has doubled since then. Rent has gone up nearly 70% in the region since 2010. And with that, we've been seeing artists getting pushed out of Seattle. And we've also seen an influx of musicians moving to L.A. To understand if Seattle's woes are really that bad in the grand scheme of things, we've launched a mini-series called L.A. versus Seattle. Today we hear why one musician left Seattle for L.A. two years ago. But first we hear from two people who moved to Seattle about three years ago with the hopes of starting a band. Sean Colopy moved from the Bay Area in California, and Glenn Hyder moved from New Jersey. Soon after the move, they formed the band Rakoma. said he was already familiar with local bands from Seattle, and he says he actually moved here for the music scene. He liked the sound of the music better than what he was hearing from the Bay Area. Once he arrived in Seattle, he felt he went back in time, in a good way. I think Seattle felt like what the Bay Area felt like when I was younger, like growing up. So I have a different perspective coming here, having been from a tech boom area into like what is still a tech boom area but like not quite to the same degree as the bay area so i was really excited there's been a lot about the city that i really enjoy and i've been very happy to be here and Hyder says he feels there's more opportunities to grow a band in seattle and he feels more supported here as a musician 
It's great. I love Seattle. Mainly for the scene is like, because it's the right size. Most scenes, like, I come from Jersey where it's like, everyone's in Brooklyn and everyone's in a band and it's like almost impossible to be on anyone's radar. But here I feel like it's small enough, but still big where you can kind of find your niche, you know? Like coming from a different scene, like it's really welcoming and, and people, you tell people you're a musician and they're excited about that. Whereas like, you know, back in Jersey, you tell them and they'd be like, oh, you're never going to make money. Colopy says he's been surprised by how supportive bands are of each other in Seattle. We've made really good friends with other bands and, you know, show up at each other's shows and actually like help book each other for different things. And it's just been one of the one of the really cool things about this scene is just how much people want to help each other out and show their support and show friendship and yeah it's been awesome. Rakoma is dedicated to making music together in Seattle and they found ways to make that happen in a way that makes sense financially. Yeah, we all actually live a little bit outside of the city in Mount Lake Terrace um, in a house together um, and we have like our basement where we record and um, practice and all that um, and yeah we have side jobs. Yeah, we're able to save a lot of money just having a practice space in-house and then lowering rent by just having a lot of us share rent on a house. So, And it being north of Seattle would be cheaper than being directly in Seattle. So yeah, those kinds of things help for sure. Both Hyder and Calopy say in the grand scheme of things, Seattle's woes aren't as bad as maybe they seem. It's all about perspective. I think depends on where you come from. Obviously, I think if you grow up with Having been in Seattle, you're going to see how it's changing, maybe not as as supportive of artists as it has been in the past, but coming from a different city entirely, I have a different view of it, I mm-hmm. think. You know, I think you could go to like LA and try to be an artist there, but it's so spread out. So you're going to make sacrifices somewhere in the Bay Area. You're going to pay a lot for, you know, a place to, to live and you're still going to have to commute a ways to go play the venues you want to play. So I'm grateful to be somewhere as geographically and just supportive of artists the way it is. Yeah. It's not that expensive to live here. Everyone says it is, but it's not. There's so many other cities that are way more expensive. (laughs) So I'm just throwing that out there, guys. Yeah. That was the band Rakoma. To get another perspective on Seattle's music scene is Ceci Gomez. She lived in Seattle from 2013 till 2017 and played in a band called Crater. Gomez has been living in the Silver Lake neighborhood of L.A. for two years now. She says it's pretty similar to Seattle's Capitol Hill, with a bonus added to her living space. I have a studio in the back of my house. It's like the separate building that's been it was built out as a studio prior to me moving in she left seattle because crater was starting to come to an end the cloudy skies were getting to her and she wanted to move somewhere where she could focus on writing pop music for other artists like rakoma gomez was used to big cities before she moved to seattle she was born and raised in houston and she moved to new york city to study music production in college she then went on to do music management in new york city then got burnout and needed a reason to leave. My best friend, Kessia, who I was in, in Crater with in Seattle, she we went to NYU together. And when I had been talking about feeling like I wanted to leave New York because I had just been so exhausted from being there, she had actually moved back to Seattle after school. And she was like, you should just try it out here. Why not? Like, it could be really fun. So I, 
I went pretty much only knowing Kess. And yeah, and then I stayed for a lot longer than I actually thought I, I was. I, I kind of knew in my mind that Seattle was a stepping stone to another place, but I wasn't sure what that was at that time. And the thought of moving to L.A. right from New York felt like it, I would be kind of going into the same thing that I left as far as like the entertainment and music industry goes um, between New York and L.A. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you feel like yeah. you were able to grow in a way that you wanted in Seattle musically? 100%. And I I think about that often. I think that if I didn't have the history of me making music in Seattle and like developing who I was as a person and what I valued, I don't know if I I would have been able to to make it through LA on a daily basis and be able to parcel through what is real and and what isn't. And I think that's also the, something that just comes with age because I'm 29 now and I, and I have a very strong sense of, of who I am. But I attribute a lot of that to Seattle and the people I know that the people I know from there and my experience of having so much. I felt like in Seattle, I had a lot of time to myself to reflect on on who I was and who I wanted to be. And I'm very grateful for that. Gomez says she's enjoyed her time in L.A. so far, but says it's been hard, too. L.A. is a hard place to live uh, as far as any anything in the entertainment industry goes, because it's it's such a big city and everybody's trying to do the same thing. But simultaneously, there's a lot more work out here, especially in the pop music realm as far as producing and writing goes, um, to have more opportunities to work with artists that have the funding through larger labels and, and things like that and TV syncs and things in that realm to make a living doing that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what L.A. has done for you creatively? Like what kind of new things have you been able to do being in L.A.? Um, that you may not have been able to do if you were still living in Seattle? Pretty much my entire career, I I don't think at this point in time is possible in Seattle because um, it doesn't have the the infrastructure of the entertainment industry that L.A. has had for a really long time as far as the producers and artists that live there. I feel like there's never really been a time where – there were a ton of producers coming out of Seattle and the pop industry has always been in L.A. So just just having thousands and thousands of artists to work with in L.A. is is awesome and something that isn't as present in Seattle, because I feel like though the music is has always been thriving in Seattle and there's so many amazing musicians that live there. Um for the most part, people are pretty insular within their c- music communities and and are pretty self-sufficient or consider themselves self-sufficient in being able to create the music they want to make on their own without the outside of help of other writers and producers in the room. Yeah. It's something else that we've been talking about a lot, you know, on, on the show Sound and Vision is, you know, how much, you know, Seattle's changed over the years. You know, it's gotten way more expensive. You know, we're seeing gentrification. We're seeing, you know, big venues like the Showbox being threatened to be torn down and become apartment buildings. It's like, where is the soul of the city going? And also, like, where are artists able to live because it's getting so expensive? But at the same time, there's a city like L.A. that's, you know, you've seen gentrification for many, many years, and it is really, really expensive. 
And I'm curious, like, as you look back to Seattle and, you know, we're, we're, we're expressing our woes here, are they really as bad as we think that they are? <laughs> I do. I really don't think they are. And I remember complaining about that at the time when I was there, but I definitely pay way more in rent now than I did when I lived in Seattle. But I mean, for me as a Latin person, I mean, there are multiple reasons why I left Seattle. And and one of them was definitely the lack of diversity in Seattle. And, and as a Hispanic person, I never really found a community of friends or places that I would go where I felt like I was able to speak Spanish or like or eat the food that I wanted to eat that I felt like was really authentic. And um, even though there is so much gentrification in L.A., it's still just such a massive city. And there are every single type walk of human from wherever is here and they have their own communities here. And I, I always felt like in Seattle, there was a much larger conversation constantly of them of those people being pushed out but it felt like by the time I moved there because I moved there in 2013 a lot of those people had already been pushed out that was my conversation with Ceci Gomez her latest collaboration was with an artist called Silver Sphere for this song Boys in Bands the second you walk in with tattoos and problems I can't help but think I'm the one who could solve them Gomez says she's been writing songs for some other artists, including a Chilean singer, and she's also writing some music of her own. She says writing music for herself keeps her sane in L.A. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. For the second half of the podcast, we'll be talking about music, art, and immigration. Let's start with music. International performers are having a hard time getting visas to perform across borders. Before they even get their visa, they have to provide 15 years of their travel history, employment history, past and current social media handles, email accounts, and addresses. KEXP's woe pop DJ Derek Mazzoni has been playing artists who've been impacted by these policies. He joins me now to talk about how the so-called extreme vetting procedure is impacting artists, as well as discuss the music of those who've been tied up in all of this. Hi, Derek. Hi, Emily. We've got a lot to talk about today. That's a small subject. Yeah, we can cover that in a millisecond. (laughs) So how prevalent of an issue is this where musicians are having a hard time performing internationally because of our visa process? And I should say this this new level of of so-called extreme vetting has been around for about two years now. Yeah. Uh, The current administration set it up uh, based on security issues. Um, But let's unpack that a little bit right now. Um, A lot of these artists are actually coming from places such as London and Paris. They're not just uh, all coming from, quote unquote, uh, shithole countries, as our uh, current administration is calling. And those cities such as Paris and London have dealt with way more terrorism and attacks than have happened here. It's really sad because uh, we are those artists are playing different parts of the world. We're missing out. When you started picking out music for the show you did Tuesday, how many artists did you come up with who've been impacted by all this? Oh, just about everybody has been impacted by it. Um, um, but it's current right now. You know, there's there's uh, there's a lot of there that has to deal with racism, has to deal with Islamophobia, has to deal has to deal with laziness. Fundamentally, it's just if you don't see these artists, if you don't get out there and f- have a firsthand experience with them. 
then it's just like, you know, people used to think that in Asia people had like horses' heads or that, you know, it's just if you don't know, you don't know and then you're an idiot. So you, not to be an idiot, you need to at least spend a little bit of time with these people. And that's what we miss out when you don't get a chance to be there, when they're performing live with you, when they're talking with you at the end of the show, or when you hopefully get your butt out of this country and go visit someplace else. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about three of these artists that you played on Tuesday. Okay. Tal Nationale, uh, who are from Niger, huge stars in Niger. I've been lucky enough to have them on uh, What Papa Cakes. We did an in-studio with them. They almost didn't get their visas to come in. They had a huge tour planned of the United States. They just played uh, last week at, uh, at Nectar, a fabulous show. Um, they almost couldn't make it. And that's the thing that's really hard in these things because it's, there's an economic investment that bookers and clubs put out, and the visa is the last part. So you're right there, and if it falls apart, then everybody's losing. And then next time, A, the band's going to be, I don't want to do this. B, the booker's like, I don't want to take a chance on this. Let me just play another freaking band from San Diego. <laughs> Love San Diego. But you know what I mean? This just It takes courage to do that. We're lucky in Seattle that we have all these bands. So, Town National played a Nectar, and, um, and they're amazing. They're fun. The, the lead singer is a doctor, uh, community leader, and they actually kill it uh, with this really interesting guitar-driven rock. Tell National from Niger. So that was Tal National from Niger, just one band that has been impacted by issues with visa and immigration when it comes to touring overseas. Uh, Derek Mazzoni, what's what's another band that's been impacted by these policies? Oh, the band just canceled um, last week, Cubanismo from Cuba. And this is really freaking annoying because it's like these laws become so arbitrary. Right now, this current administration is trying to basically unwind the things that the last administration done. So if you're an artist, you were here last year, two years ago or three years ago, fine, no problem. Suddenly you get stopped at the border. You have a Cuban, you're Cubanismo, you have a Cuban passport. Nope. Cuba can't come in right now. So it's this inability for a way to plan ahead. Why is it now? Did something happen with Cuba? Yeah. The new administration came in and decided to pick some boogeymen, and Cuba's one of them, so we're going to bar these artists from coming through. Even though a few years ago, they were here, no problem. And so they're not, they're, they, the whole West Coast, the tour's canceled um, because they can't play. So this is happening ongoing right now. That was Cubanismo. Derek, what's one last uh, musician that you want to talk about that's been impacted by these these restraints, visa applications to be able to tour internationally? Well, let's let's talk about Tenaruan because they it became they're here, they're playing, they got their visas, but they look they're they're uh, Tuareg musicians, so they've got turbans, they've got veils. They're a particular, you know, they live in a desert. If you're in a desert, you wear stuff on your head and you cover yourself from the sand. But they look like, you know, the the typical yet beautifully dressed Islamic boogeyman. So they were um, about, they're about going to be doing a show in Winston-Salem. And um, all of these death threats 
and really vitriolic hate of this band, even without seeing them, came up on social media. So that threatens the venue, the booking agent, the band. Now, this is the funny part, not funny, sad. These artists, there's movies about them. They stood up to Islamists. They stood up to, um, you know, full-on militias with AK-47 and rocket propelled grenades and some... Uh, let's say, intellectually challenged person in Winston-Salem is saying, I'm going to bring my AR to the show. These people are not afraid of you. They actually have fought and stood up against, they've been in a situation. And, and so this band, they, they, they did end up, yeah, they they're were, playing. they, they did, are yeah. able to play. But it's always a risk. It's always, always, um, always really hard for it to come, for them to come in. But they have a, a new record that's coming out in September and a beautiful new song with Nura Mitsimali from uh, Mauritania and others, and it's great to be able to share that. And that's one of the wonderful things about us here at KXP is like, you know, we can push back against that stupidity by playing music of these artists. And hopefully they got in this time next year. You never know. And this band, again, one more time, is called? Tinaruin. Grammy winning Tinaruin. <laughs> That was the band Tinaruin, and I've been speaking with KEXP Wopop DJ Derek Mazzoni about how extreme betting has impacted international artists' ability to perform overseas and across borders. Meanwhile, issues surrounding immigration is something Washington State's Poet Laureate knows very well. Her name is Claudia Castro Luna. When she was 14, her family fled the Civil War in El Salvador. Many of her poems and stories explore a sense of place as well as war. Claudia Castro Luna joins us now to talk about her work and views on immigration. Hello. Hello. Take us back to your personal journey. Can you talk about what was happening in El Salvador when you and your family left when you were 14? Yes, so that was 19... My family left in January of 1981. Um, 1980 was probably the worst year of the war in El Salvador. We were, in fact, in a de facto war, though it had not yet been called that. Officially, the war is named a civil war in January, the month we left. But in 1980... Uh, Monsignor Romero, uh, who was the Archbishop of El Salvador and has been now canonized by the Catholic Church, was murdered. Three American nuns and a lay worker were murdered as well. They were working in El Salvador and coming from the airport, and they were ambushed and uh, murdered. And that was, I think, the, the fact that these foreign American nuns were murdered and that the priests who occupied... Uh, rank-wise, the highest rank, but also he was beloved by the community, was murdered publicly while he was officiating mass, was uh, to all of us, you know, an indication that our lives really didn't matter because if they could kill religious people, well, what about those of us who were just regular citizens? And so the the fear and the persecutions and the disappearances and the murders. I mean, Colette, there were there were villages that were erased, you know, by the military in El Salvador uh, was terrible. We lived in a reign of terror and it was impossible to have an everyday existence in El Salvador. There were military equipment, helicopters flying overboard. There were tanks patrolling the city, not like a police car, but actual tanks. Um, and so it was a war. We were in a war zone. And I 
you know, we were lucky that we were able to escape. And you were, your family was in specific danger because your parents were teachers. Mm-hmm. And I understand teachers were being targeted at that mm-hmm. time. Oh, yeah. Teachers had been targeted for a while. Um, and I read, I'm working um, on a memoir right now, uh, piecing together this story, my, my immigration story. And I read a very interesting piece uh, by a researcher that argued essentially that there were crimes against humanity, that you could, they were that it was so um, teachers were targeted to, to the degree of wanting to be of making them extinct. I mean, they were followed, they were persecuted, they were ambushed, they were killed in classrooms on their way to schools. Um, it was really terrible. Uh, and many of my parents, friends were murdered that way. Wow. So you arrive in the U.S. Um, when you're 14, and then fast forward a few years, you graduate from high school, mm-hmm. and I understand that you actually won an award for English, not for <laughs> speaking English, but for English literature. Yes. And you had just learned English a few years prior, so to excel in just English literature classes. And then I understand you started writing poems when you studied abroad in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, what inspired those first poems for you? Um, yeah, my first poems were written in France. Yes, I was a, a French major in college, and I traveled abroad for a year. So I was living, I, I lived six months in Poe, which is in the south of France, and I lived six months in Paris. And I was there on my own. I think I was the only immigrant kid and that cohort of students from UC. So I went to a UC school in California. So it was a cohort of maybe like 35 kids from UCs who went to France. And, you know, English was new to me even then. But here I was learning another language. And it just felt like I was an immigrant again in France, you know. Um, So it was like being an immigrant twice at the same time. Uh, By then, the U.S. was our home. So I was longing for my parents, for California, for Southern California, for the school that I went to. And so it was that longing and the loneliness, I think, of feeling uh, not quite at home in French, not at home in France, sort of discovering this new world that prompted those first poems. And the first poems that I ever wrote were some of them are were written in French. Uh, some of them were written in Spanish and some of them are in English. It was a mix of, of la- however I could capture my inner self, you know? Yeah. Well, we're going to hear um, a poem that kind of captures your experience with 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 being an immigrant, experience of war in a, in a second. But first, I kind of w- I wanted to talk about what's happening, you know, right now. We're hearing a lot of things in the political world, you know, around the nation, this rhetoric around immigration. As an immigrant yourself, what are your thoughts when you hear political leaders condemn immigrants or those trying to flee their their home countries? What do you what do you want to say mm. uh, to those leaders? Yeah, I want to say a lot. Uh, but the main thing I think I want to say, well, first of all, I think I want to um, point out to my own experience and the experience of many immigrants I know from El Salvador, my being my sister and my parents, my cousins and friends I have, all of us uh, occupied fruitfully in the economy, uh, doing things as varied as you know, being a poet, myself, being a social worker, my sister, working in as janitors in a school, um, being doctors, being nurses. So all of us 
are really embedded and and just part of the American fabric in every sense. We have families here. Our children are growing up American, you know, uh, going to baseball games in the summer, to having huge Fourth of July picnics, all of this stuff. Um, so that's one thing I want to say, that this happens. This is what happens to people. We And that's the story of America itself. People coming over and beginning anew and finding, inserting them ways in fruitful, fruitful ways um, to partake of the life around them. And then the other thing, more specifically to El Salvador and Central America, what pains me about what's happening is that the stories of these of these people, of these children, these families, these men and women, are disconnected from the historical record. So we see, we sort of you know portray them as they're coming up here on their own. You know they they want to take over, um, and in fact, the U.S. has a deep history of intervention in in Central America and in Latin America. I mean, starting with the the building of the canal, that was a huge disruptive force. Um, interventions in Nicaragua in the you know 1800s, um, in Guatemala in the 1950s, getting involved with devaluing a democratically elected president there because the U.S. was in disagreement with the politics of that person. In El Salvador, long history of um, supporting and propping up military men who were atrocious and um, just, I don't, I don't like the word evil, but they were really, uh, had no scruples and no moral bearings and did terrible things to like these villages I spoke about earlier, who these villages were every single one person there were assassinated. And it's only until now that we, the UW, for instance, uh, their Center for Human Rights is, is brought up to light the degree to which these murders happen a lot in El Salvador in small villages and were covered up and, you know, not for the people, of course, because the, the relatives know what happened, but there was no way of really getting the word out. And I think that's what happens in situations of war is dissent is suppressed to the point where there is no uh, no way to feel safe to even articulate a simple opinion that, you know, may challenge the the order. Right. Um, so I think that is the one thing that really bothers me is that it's totally decontextualized to me. All those people coming from El Salvador really are, it's the tail end of the war that happened in the very, the end of the war, the official end was in 92, a uh, piece of courts were signed, but everybody agrees it wasn't really a deep, um, it was, the war needed to end and you know, we needed to have uh, an end to the war. Let's have peace accords. Let's sign these awards. But it wasn't a really well thought out um, way of dealing with the economic uh, destruction of the country with the arms that were there. The U.S. was very involved and it was beneficial to the U.S. to finish that work because it just kept on going on for so long. So, so yeah, that is what I would say. I would say let's not be have historical amnesia and let's look at all the ways in which uh, the U.S. has actually caused the destabilization in those countries. Yeah, that's powerful. That's really powerful to see. There is a reason why they're traveling. There's a reason why things got so bad, and mm -hmm. maybe we played a part in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have a poem that kind of captures your personal story of either immigration or war that you want to share? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually brought this poem called Tyranny of the Milky Way. And what I'm trying to do this in this poem, for a long time in my writing, I was trying to remember a time in El Salvador where there was no war. 
time because I have happy memories of El Salvador, of being with my grandmothers, of lunches, you know, in the afternoon, followed by coffee underneath a, you know, a grape arbor, you know, pleasant memories of family and holiday festivities and things like this. So I've tried to think, when is it that the war happened? When is it that the war made life impossible? And so this poem is trying to get at that. As a young teenager who was, um, the war became complete chaos as I entered my early teenagehood. And so my awareness of the world was sharpened in a way that hadn't been before as a kid. And so that's what this poem is trying to get at. Tyranny of the Milky Way. The way clouds taste as they go from castles to rabbits above your head. You are 12, your skin damp from the humid tropical day, the grass under your arms and legs benign, even if itchy. The way a million stars scatter at night, and you, in jersey gown and bare feet, seek the same spot from earlier in the day to count far away incandescent rocks, and tucked behind your ear, your secret wish to spot a single UFO. The way a slice of tres leches cake on your 13th birthday surrenders in unison on your tongue its sweet milks. The way, at 12, you tasted marvel, and by 14, you tasted war. That was a poem by Washington State's Poet Laureate, Claudia Castro Luna. Thanks for coming in and sharing your story with us. Thank you for inviting me. It was lovely. As we've been hearing on Sound and Vision, rhetoric around immigration has been high in the U.S. lately. So we wanted to reach out to listeners to hear what's a song that reminds them of America— or what America should be and why? And here are some of their answers. My name is Anna Nazarova, and I live in New York City. And the song that makes me think of America is Sinaloa Cowboys by Bruce Springsteen, because it's a story of two young immigrant boys who go through a lot of hardship to cross the border into America and then encounter a lot of struggle, trying to survive, working jobs that you know, normal citizens don't want to work. And it's a really sad story about how one of them ends up dying because of this tough job. And I don't know why this is the first song that came into my head. I mean, I guess because of all the sad things happening with immigration all over the world right now. But truly, that's the feeling that, without a doubt, that song just came up in my brain as soon as I thought about America. Unfortunately, because it's truly devastating. And that whole album is Bruce Springsteen captures, I think, the whole spirit of America. And not just 20 years ago or 50 years ago, but it's just as relevant today, sadly. And I think this song, again, really captures that mood for me. They left their homes and family. Their father said, my son's one thing you will learn. For everything the North gives, it exacts a price in return. This is Leslie from San Francisco, but born and raised in Toronto, Canada. And the song that most reminds me of America and all the dreams I had as a little girl before I moved here was Kids in America by Kim Wilde. This week I learned that my high school is about to have a big reunion. And I got to thinking a lot about what brought me to California. 
And the song Kids in America just really hit a nerve with me when I was a little girl. It kind of included all the dreams of living in a city and being in Los Angeles and going downtown and even the dirty windows and the street noise downstairs. And I just love the song so much. Finally, when I was 17, I visited Los Angeles to stay with cousins. And one spectacular night, one of my friends from high school who was also visiting L.A., and I went downtown with his L.A. friends. And it was probably one of the best nights of my entire adolescence and certainly in the top ten of my life. And I knew from that point on that L.A. needed to become my home. And you fast forward four years later, and San Francisco is my home. But I was lucky enough to marry an Angelino, and I still go to Los Angeles as often as I can. And the place holds so much magic and bright lights and happiness for me that I keep coming back to this song and how wonderful it was. My name is Julie, and I live in Wallingford in Seattle, and I want to talk about Fozzie Bear's rendition of America the Beautiful, because when my brother and I were little, we used to watch the Muppet movie again and again, and when we go on road trips through the Midwest with my parents, there were these sacred moments when my brother and I would kind of cease our constant fighting, and we would just sing America the Beautiful just over and over. And we were only kind of half kidding at being silly and annoying our parents because there is something beautiful about America when you're just getting to know it as a child and when you've been taught the basic principles and what it stands for and you believe in that underlying foundation of acceptance and tolerance and equality. And it's before you truly have to understand the loopholes and corruption in implementing any type of government. So when you just get back to the basics, then you remember that we have the possibility for something very beautiful in this country. For purple mountains, majesties, how Thanks to everyone who wrote in with their answers to this week's question. If you have a question you think we should ask on this podcast, you can write us at soundandvision at kexp.org. And if you like what you heard on this show today, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to me, and it helps other people discover this show. And if you really do love this podcast, KEXP would love to see a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org sound. Well, as we wrap up each and every Sound and Vision, we have one last question to ask. Why does music matter? This week, we hear from Of Monsters and Men. It gives you so much. It just, it, it kind of exaggerates every feeling you feel. So if you feel this way, you listen to music, it makes you feel it more. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a way for people to connect. Yeah. You know, you can, like, a song can, you know, reach so many people around the world and they all have the same feeling it brings something you know the same kind of feeling it's like it's so universal that's that's really beautiful it I is think. beautiful and if you're lonely mm-hmm. it's music is a beautiful partner as well so it kind of keeps you company mm-hmm. so it, it's a lot of things that was sound and vision thanks for listening Wake me up.